There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. Why? It would be bad. No conductor can flow the way that I can. I'll take weak MCs and put their face in the sand. But when it comes to decoding markets, we could all use a hand. Two straight weeks of taking losses, that wasn't the plan. Unless the plan got chopped faster than Jackie Chan. Quicker than Bruce Lee taking care of Mr. Hand. Man, he comes right out of a comic book. A sharp reversal for big tech? You better take a look and stop. Children, what's that sound? Everything that was up is going down. Resistance and reversals, yeah, they're going round. We used to feel like Buffett, now we feel like a clown. But it's time for this big circus to head out of town. Pack the tent, load the lines, turn that frown upside down. Because markets don't move in one direction. We got a groove like Harry, step to the inflection. Rebalance across sectors, add some finesse. Lights up, sweet creatures. You're on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And who let the dogs out? Another week of losses for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq as the mega caps broke stride for the second straight week following hotter than expected inflation data out of the producer price index on Friday. That pushed treasury yields higher, making the air a little thinner for those rate sensitive giants. The consumer price index for July was little changed from June, but did sneak up to 3.2% on an annual basis as gas, food and shelter prices remained elevated. We'll dig deeper into that in a minute, but since we're digging, Dig into the continued rise in oil prices on the rise for seven straight weeks. Those production cuts by OPEC and OPEC Plus are taking their tolls, along with reduced refining capacity due to extreme heat across the U.S. and Europe. As oil prices rise, so do oil and energy-related stocks, and that has brought about a pretty seismic sector rotation within the S&P super sectors. To wit, the S&P energy sector was the top performing of the 11 S&P super sectors, rising 3.5% last week compared to a 0.3% loss for the overall market. Meanwhile, the NASDAQ 100, the 100 fastest growing companies on the NASDAQ composite, fell for a second straight week, which hasn't happened since last December. And bonds, which have attracted a lot of money from both institutional and individual investors, have been anything but friendly. While yields remain elevated for short-term government bonds, which has kept us dangling in an inverted yield curve for over a year, bond prices have been in a three-year drawdown, by far the longest in history. That leaves investors like us in a very odd pickle. Since bonds have not been a reliable stabilizer for our portfolios, we've been betting that stocks will continue to deliver the alpha we need to beat inflation. When we get scared out of the stock market, we hide in cash, which has finally been paying for itself with 4% yields on high-yield savings accounts, CDs, and money market funds. And there's still $5.5 trillion sitting in money market funds, a record amount, even after the stock market's sizzling rally so far this year. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one. The stock market rally since last October has not been driven by you, me, and our neighbors down the street. According to the Investment Company Institute, mutual fund and exchange-traded fund investors, like many of us, have been selling out of the stock market all through the rally that began last fall and were not letting up. Retail investors sold $5.5 billion in stock market holdings last week, on top of $5.5 billion sold during the month of July, according to ICI. In total, we've cashed out of $102 billion in stocks so far this year and $181 billion since the rally began last October. 
We are usually late to the party, coming and going. We were buying during the boom in 2021 and into 2022 as the Fed floored interest rates and the government sent trillions of dollars to U.S. households. Even when the worm turned in the first few months of 2022, we kept buying, and we only started selling out of stocks again in the spring of 2022 when the bear market got really aggressive. To be sure, most people on defined retirement plans like 401ks and IRAs kept contributing to their stock plans, but outside of those, individual investors have been issuing stocks and either hiding in cash or using those proceeds to keep up our rampant consumer spending habits, which leads us right to number two. U.S. credit card debt hit a record high of $1.07 trillion in the second quarter of this year, according to the Fed, and overall household debt also hit a record high of over $17 trillion. Aggressive post-pandemic spending, high inflation, and record high APRs on credit cards will do that to you. Defaults and delinquencies, however, remain relatively low, but they're creeping higher as all that stimulus money is drying up. While these record high numbers are pretty scary, it's also worth noting that the denominator, that's U.S. household net worth, is also much larger than it used to be. In fact, since 2000, U.S. household net worth is up close to 250% compared to credit card debt, which is up 106%. The problem with that statistic, however, is that household net worth has not risen for everyone, especially lower income households, and their credit card debt just keeps getting bigger as inflation has a much more profound impact on their budgets. Food and shelter have been the big drivers of consumer prices, and they are not getting cheaper. And oh yeah, student loan debt repayments are coming back this fall after a three-year hiatus. That's an average of $350 per month per borrower that is no longer available for discretionary spending or credit card balance payments. And number three, despite all of this, consumer confidence and sentiment have been trending higher. Consumer confidence, which was riding a two-year high back in July, softened a little bit last month, according to the University of Michigan's latest survey. Higher gas prices had a lot to do with that, according to the survey, as prices at the pump surged 18% in July. Still, U.S. consumers think things are going to get better. Consumers see inflation rising at a 3.3% rate over the next year. That's down from 3.4% last month, and consumers' perception of their future financial situation rose to the highest level in two years. Inside the stock market, individual investors are saying they're as confident as they've been in months. Both Investopedia's Investor Sentiment Survey and the AAII Sentiment Survey are as bullish as they've been all year. So why, oh why, are we net sellers of stocks and keeping our money in the bank? Something is not adding up. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and earnings season is wrapping up. The second quarter will mark the third consecutive negative quarter of year-over-year earnings for the S&P 500. Looking ahead, analysts are expecting corporate profits to be roughly flat for this, the third quarter, and then popping 7% in the fourth quarter, according to FactSet. That pop might be what put the pop back into the stock market the first half of this year. Big investors are always betting on the future, and they're betting things are going to get brighter. Retail earnings will take center stage this week with reports from Home Depot, Target, and Walmart. If you really want to know how the U.S. consumer is feeling, ask them. I was in a Walmart this weekend, and it was packed. The U.S. Census Bureau will release the July retail sales report, which will confirm what we just learned from the Fed. We keep spending and swiping and tapping our credit cards to do so. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve will release minutes from the latest FOMC meeting when the Fed raised rates a quarter of a percent. Those minutes could offer clues as to the trajectory of monetary policy. But if you look at the CME's FedWatch tool, traders are pretty sure the Fed's going to keep rates right where they are, between five and a quarter and five and a half percent, and keep them there for the rest of the year, higher for longer. 
We're also going to get the latest updates on the U.S. housing market, which has been frozen by those high rates for over a year. We'll see building permits and housing starts for July and the NAHB's housing market index for August. We'll also get inflation and GDP readings from the U.K., Eurozone, and Japan this week. For decades, value investing took a backseat to growth investing as low interest rates, low inflation, and ultra-accommodative fiscal policies flush money into the economy and into the capital markets. That brought thousands of companies to the public markets that binged on debt and a mission to grow at all costs. Index funds and ETFs rode this wave, bringing investors of all sizes with it, delivering fabulous returns, but also some fantastic booms and busts, just like we've seen over the last couple of years. Well, don't call it a comeback, but value investing is back, and the principles behind it matter more than ever to stock investors. This week, we have the honor and pleasure of speaking with one of the grand masters of value investing and multi-factor investing, the practice of applying a number of factors or strategies with the aim to achieve outperformance over the long term. Rob Arnott is the founder and chairman of the board of Research Affiliates. He's been on the cutting edge of creating unconventional portfolio strategies, including tactical asset allocation, global tactical asset allocation, tax advantage equity management, and the fundamental index approach to investing. And he is our very special guest on The Express this week. Thanks so much, Rob, for being with us. It's a real privilege. You, early on in your career, wanted to be an astrophysicist, but you wound up in finance. How did that happen? It's actually very simple. Astrophysics is pure math. If you want to be a good astrophysicist, you'd better absolutely rock in math. And I was very good in math. I wasn't cutting edge. So I realized early in my college education, I, I was toying between astrophysics and finance. And I realized I can be a mediocre astrophysics professor, or I can bring scientific method to finance because it wasn't used in finance at the time. So I was a quant before the word quant was coined. Yeah. Well, you apply the scientific method in finance, which is so valuable, especially for value investors. What is it about the scientific method that just makes it so perfect for what you do and the way you approach investing? Scientific method is actually not practiced all that often in science. Most people are looking for proof and validation of their prior hypotheses. Scientific method involves starting with a hypothesis. Here's what I think is going on. Here's how I think the world works. Here I, here's how I think quantum mechanics works or whatever. And then testing it. But the testing is done from the vantage point of curiosity, not from the vantage point of trying to prove your point. And that's what's often missing, even in the hard sciences like physics, and overwhelmingly missing in the quant community in investing and the academic quant community. Everyone's trying to prove their point instead of saying, what can I learn? Right. The learning is so important. And that's the thing about investing. It's a never-ending learning journey. So let's talk about value investing, something that is core to you, but also core to investing overall. Why does it work and why is it working well now? Well, firstly, we need to define our terms. Even growth investors will say, we're looking for the best values in growth. We care what we pay for a stock. Might not be true, but that's what they'll say. Value investing classically defined means favoring companies that are cheap, objectively cheap, low price earnings ratios, high dividend yields, low price to sales, low price to book, stocks that are objectively cheap, out of favor, 
And if you're a qualitative value investor, you're also going to dig down and say, is this a value trap? Is this a company headed to zero? Now, that, that doesn't mean that people won't fall for value traps anyway. Some of the biggest value investors and even growth investors in the business got blindsided by Enron because they didn't look in the right places and see that there was fraud. But be that as it may, value investing typically means buying cheap stocks. And buying cheap stocks, the classic definition for value is the Fama French definition, which dates back to early 90s. And basically, they use very simple price to book. Stocks trading at low price to book are value stocks. Stocks trading at high price to book are growth stocks. And in their terminology, they take the 30% cheapest, that's their value portfolio, the 30% most expensive, that's their growth portfolio. And lo and behold, if your grandparents had bought the Fama French value portfolio 60 years ago, and their next door neighbor bought the Fama French growth portfolio 60 years ago, and they rebalanced it once a year to make sure that value stays value and growth stays growth, you would now have inherited a portfolio five times as valuable as the portfolio of the heirs of that next door neighbor. So, Does value work? Oh, you betcha. It works over the very long run very well. The problem is the ups and downs. If you'd stopped in 2007 and just switched to an index fund, you'd be 10 times as wealthy as that neighbor. Right. Timing is everything. So let's talk about index investing. And so many of us, especially individual investors through our 401ks or IRAs or whatever our plans are, are index investors or we buy ETFs, which are kind of a cousin to index investing. What do we get wrong about it? And I know you you have a, a paper coming out that you're working on that talks about it a little bit, but what is it that the general public just misses when we talk about index investing writ large? I'm a big fan of indexing. Index investing is a terrific concept. Jack Bogle was fond of saying it's not the efficient market hypothesis, the EMH, it's the CMH, the costs matter hypothesis. And that dovetails with Bill Sharp's famous 1990s paper, The Arithmetic of Active Management. What he pointed out is the market is cap-weighted. If you invest in an index fund, you're investing in a fund that seeks to match the market and is cap-weighted. It's basically the same portfolio. So you take the index funds out of the picture, you're left with everything that active managers will own. Well, that's the same portfolio. And if it's the same portfolio, it's going to have the same return. But the fees are higher, the trading costs are higher. So on average, active managers have to underperform. That's the Bill Sharp thesis. Now, there's something interesting going on there. There's no index fund that spans the whole market. So, what's missing is non-index fund members. And so, one way to win is if the non-members are trading too cheap and subsequently outperform. Well, right now, being a member of the S&P or Russell index is worth about a 40% premium in valuation to being a non-member. That's a huge premium. And that means that the non-members probably are priced to give you a superior return. So that's one interesting chink in the armor. The other chink in the armor is just because the average active manager ostensibly can't win, an active manager can easily win if there's a losing active manager on the other side of the trade. 
Now, when Towers Watson, when we introduced Fundamental Index to Towers Watson, largest consulting firm in the UK, they loved the idea and they quickly realized this doesn't win because of the fundamentals. This wins because of the rebalancing. If you anchor on the size of a business, yes, you're going to take the growth stocks down to their economic footprint, the value stocks up to theirs. So you're creating this stark value tilt in the portfolio. But much more important than the value tilt, the market's constantly changing its mind on what a company's worth. And the result is, if the market price of a stock soars and its fundamentals don't, you're going to trim it. If the market tanks and the fundamentals don't, you're going to top it up. And it's that rebalancing process that's the source of the alpha. They thought, wow, that's cool. That's smart beta. They coined the expression smart beta. Now, the opposite for index funds was not stupid beta. It was bulk beta. You can own the market or you can own the market in a smart way that captures a rebalancing alpha. To them, the stupid alpha was the performance chasing managers who were on the other side of the trade of rebalancing managers. And so they looked around for what strategies have a rebalancing alpha. Equal weight does, minimum variance does, unless it anchors on the cap-weighted sector allocations or something like that. And the list goes on and on. So ultimately, value investing has a rebalancing premium and fundamental index takes that rebalancing premium to the next level because you're rebalancing across all stocks, across growth and value, across everything. Anytime the price moves and the fundamentals don't, you're going to contra-trade. And when the price moves big with the fundamentals not moving, you're going to contra-trade big. So the result is a strategy of portfolio that has a value tilt. But what's fascinating is the buy and sell list. You're always selling whatever is the most newly beloved frothy name that has just soared way beyond the fundamentals. And you're buying whatever deeply unloved, feared and loathed deep value name has tanked way below where the fundamentals are. So it's that rebalancing alpha that drives the incremental return, both for value investing and much more powerfully for fundamental index. I think you call that the big market delusion. And I think you have a 2021 paper on that. You were talking about EVs, but this is always when something hot, new and flashy comes to the market and suddenly steals the stage. So it was EVs, it was crypto, it was cannabis for a few minutes. Now maybe it's AI. Is it AI? And if it's not, what else is out there that is sort of garnering that premium because it's flashy? Here's the deal. AI, the narrative is this is going to change the world. This is the first technological innovation that will displace millions of skilled people who make a living with their brains. And early stages of the Industrial Revolution, you were displacing millions of child laborers working looms. Okay, who, who wants to turn back the clock and go back to that time? Then you were displacing horses and buggies, the, the stereotypical buggy whip manufacturer being put out of business. Then you were displacing some print media because radio and TV was more efficient. Then you were displacing computers with computers. That's tongue in cheek. There used to be an occupation called a computer, somebody who would compute. Yeah, with big mainframes that you had to slide cards into. That was like a physical job as well as a mental job. So human computers were replaced with computer computers, electronic computers. Then you had the internet. The narrative that this will change everything is absolutely correct. 
think back to 2000. The narrative was the internet is huge. The internet is going to radically reshape the way we communicate with one another, the way we socially interact, the way we look for information, the way we do our research, the way we buy and sell goods and services, and the list goes on and on. That narrative was 100% correct. The other part of the narrative was, don't worry what you're paying for these stocks. The earnings will come because this is a big deal. Well, disruptors get disrupted. Palm got disrupted by BlackBerry, which got disrupted by the iPhone. Nobody carries a Palm anymore. Hardly anyone carries a BlackBerry anymore. So disruptors get disrupted, which is very important to note. The disruptors who are on the scene in AI can easily be disrupted. Now, these are wonderful companies doing brilliant things, radically changing the world. Anyone who hasn't played around with ChatGPT or Dolly owes it to themselves to give it a try. It is fun. And it's remarkable what it can do. It's also remarkable what it can't do. But never mind that. I don't disagree with the narrative. The problem with narratives is very simple. Narratives are usually true, but they're already in the price. So the concept of big market delusion really has to do with the frothiest end of the growth spectrum. Big market delusion is you've got a a shiny new toy, something very exciting and very different and cutting edge. And boy, this is going to change the world. And the narrative is probably right. But for electric vehicles, uh, two and a half years ago, when we wrote that piece, the nine specialty EV makers that only made electric vehicles were worth nearly as much as the 30 major players in conventional automotive, many of whom made EVs, but they weren't EV specialists. So the EV specialists were worth almost as much as these 30 and were producing about 3% of the cars that were being produced in the world. Big market hypothesis simply says, when you have an exciting new idea, the dominant players at that time are all priced as if they will all succeed, and they won't. They're competing against one another. In the case of EVs, they're competing against established deep pockets players who have knowledge about EVs, who are making EVs, and who may get the jump on the EV specialists. And sure enough, those nine EV makers, on a price-to-sales ratio basis, because most of them didn't have earnings, so price-to-earnings didn't matter, price-to-sales ratio basis, Tesla was at 24 times sales. It was the second cheapest out of the nine. Second cheapest, the most expensive was over 10,000. Yet it was a market leader in the early days and still is. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened over the next two years, we did a look back on that about six months ago. And what we found was almost a linear relationship. The least expensive on price to book, I mean, price to sales, was below the market by 20 to 30%. Tesla was 30 to 40%. The rest of them were all the way to 98% behind the market. And it was almost a linear relationship. That is to say, the ones that were deemed to be the most exciting up-and-comers priced at hundreds, even thousands of times sales, were the ones that crashed hardest. Not surprising in an inefficient market. If you believe the market's efficient, more power to you, but it's not. 
So at Research Affiliates, you created the Research Affiliates Fundamental Index. It's called Rafi out there. It rates companies based on the size of their business, not their market cap. And you guys have really been the leaders in this. So when you look at companies based on the size of their business, what factors, so to speak, are the most important ones for you to be looking at as an investor? You know, it's not a matter of what are the important factors. It's a matter of breaking the link with price. The fundamental index weights companies according to how big they are in terms of their macroeconomic footprint. It doesn't just weight them that way. It also chooses them that way. So you might say, what are the thousand largest businesses in the U.S. economy? Okay, let's weight them by how big their business is. Now, the size of a business has multiple measures. When we walk on, on the beach in the sand, our footprint has multiple measures, length, width, depth of the footprint. The fundamental size of a business can be measured by what are its sales, what are its profits, EBITDA or whatever. What's its net worth? Book value or book value plus intangibles, which is our preferred replacement for book value. What does it give back to the shareholders in terms of dividends or stock buybacks? And you can use these four measures and say, how big is the business? ExxonMobil has a particular size in the U.S. economy based on sales, larger size based on profits, larger size yet based on net worth of the business, and larger size yet based on dividends plus buybacks because they do a lot of big buybacks. So four different measures of the size of the business. Is it 1% of the U.S. economy or 2.5%? Who knows? Let's just average those. One and three quarter percent. Okay, that'll be our weight. Now, if you do things that way, firstly, you are not falling into the trap of adding stocks to your index because they're frothy, popular, and extravagantly expensive. That's one Achilles heel of cap weighting. It's not the weighting that's hurting you. It's the choice of the stocks that you're weighting. Secondly, you have an anchor, a stable anchor for rebalancing and contra-trading against the market's constantly changing views. Two, three years ago, ExxonMobil was cheap. It was cheap relative to its fundamentals because there was a narrative. Narratives usually have a grain of truth or even are entirely true, but they're also entirely in the share price, which is the problem with narratives. The narrative was stranded assets. This company is huge. It's got big assets. It's got big profits but those assets are going to go to waste. They're stranded. They won't be used because we're moving to a carbon-free world. Pardon me, but moving to a carbon-free world takes not just decades, it takes generations. So those assets aren't stranded. And lo and behold, the snapback in energy companies, as people began to realize, we're going to be tapping into these assets for a long time to come. The snapback was tremendous. And Fundamental index will have bought more of the stock because its price tanked relative to its fundamentals and then would have trimmed back those holdings after it snapped back. So one of the beauties of fundamental index is it always has a value tilt. The growth stocks are de-emphasized back down to their economic footprint. The value stocks are reweighted up to their fundamental economic footprint. So you have this stark value tilt. But if value is trading at a small discount to growth, as it was in 2007, you're going to have a small value tilt. If it's trading at a deep discount, as it was in 2000 or the summer of 2020, you're going to have an enormous value tilt. Now, this matters because it plays in with the rebalancing alpha that we are. If you're in 2007 
and values trading at a small discount, you take on a small value tilt, then value gets hammered during the global financial crisis. Okay, you're not getting hurt as badly as the value indexes. You're perhaps underperforming, but not by much. And then you rebalance into a deeper value tilt because global financial crisis pushed growth stocks and high quality stocks up to a huge premium relative to the cheap stocks. At which point you've moved into a deep value tilt. Then value snaps back from March to December of 2009, and you earn a huge premium way ahead of the value indexes. And because it's now trading at a modest discount, once again, you trim your value tilt. So you have a dynamic value tilt that contra-trades against the market's sense of revulsion about value stocks. And this is the reason we wrote the recent paper, Raffi Rocks. Folks, if you want to go deep on this, I know you did a recent uh, webinar with FTSE Russell called Rafi Rocks, discussing the fundamental index story. We will link to that in the show notes. Okay, given all of this, Rob, right now, knowing what we know, higher for longer in terms of interest rates, in terms of inflation, we've kind of had a little bit of a shakeout here in the markets, a huge growth story in the first part of the year. What looks attractive to you in the equity markets today? And it could be global, it could be small, it could be big. Where are you looking right now? Firstly, the narrative is U.S. dominates the world in growth, and that narrative is correct. It's not necessarily correct in the future, but it certainly has been correct the last 15 years. The narrative also is that, therefore, non-U.S. stocks should trade at a deep discount relative to the U.S. Well, you roll the clock back 15 years. In 2008, the U.S., before the global financial crisis crash, was priced at a Schiller PE ratio, that's price relative to 10-year smooth earnings, of 28 times. And that was considered very frothy. It had only been higher in 2000 and in 1929, 28 times. In IFA was priced at 34 times, in emerging markets at 38 times. Now, IFA and emerging markets are priced at a 40 to 50% discount to the US. So people say it should trade at a discount. Well, you could have made the same thesis 15 years ago, and you would have been right. Now things change. And so I look on emerging markets and international stocks as a bargain relative to the U.S. If you want to maintain a significant allocation to the U.S., go with value. AI is a big story. It is going to rock our world, but it's in the price. The stocks, the NVIDIAs and Microsofts of the world, in order for them to help your performance, they have to exceed extravagant expectations, where value stocks, in order to hurt you, have to underperform bleak expectations. So this is a wonderful time to pivot to value. We've had a triple bottom on the value route. First, the summer of 2020, then the fall of 2021, and now summer of 2020. 23, a triple bottom for value. I think the 2020s are going to be stupendous for value. And to the extent you're willing to make forays outside the US, non US value is really cheap. So important. And Rob, you have had such an influence on so many people throughout your career. I can't tell you how many times people cite you when I speak to them. I'm wondering who's the biggest influence in your career? Who helped you the most? I've had so many mentors in my career. One of them just recently passed away, and he was a dear friend, Harry Markowitz. 
I would say he was one of my three to four most influential mentors. I think the top of the heap would be Peter Bernstein. He created the Journal of Portfolio Management. He was running Bernstein Macaulay Asset Management when he was a young whippersnapper back in the 50s and 60s. And he was brilliant, soft-spoken, kind, caring, and endlessly curious. Okay, you know we're a website built on our investing and finance terms. I'm wondering, what's your favorite investing finance or just overall term, Rob? What's the one that just makes your heart sick? You know, I built my career on curiosity. So when you first mentioned you were going to ask this, I was thinking multi-factor, fundamental index, global tactical asset allocation, whatever. Those are all ideas, but ideas have at their root source curiosity, and a willingness to take your own hypothesis and say, can I prove myself wrong? Most investors, most scientists don't have that attitude. We love that term, and it may not fit in the investing dictionary, but it should fit in your overall dictionary and your overall playbook. Rob Arnott, the founder and chairman of the board of Research Affiliates and one of the grandmasters of value investing. Such an honor to have you on the Investopedia Express. Thanks for being with us. This was great fun. Thank you for including me. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week, we are rocking out with a trifecta. That's right. Andres Jose Oyola Garcia reached out to us on the gram suggesting the Rock Trilogy, R-O-I-C, R-O-C, and R-O-C-E. A little rock nation to celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, and you know that's how we get down on these tracks. First, R-O-I-C, Return on Invested Capital. R-O-I-C is a calculation used to determine how well a company allocates its capital to profitable projects or investments. Put another way, R-O-I-C is the amount of money a company makes that is above the average cost it pays for its debt and equity capital. To calculate return on invested capital, you divide net operating profit after tax, that's called NOPAT, by invested capital. A company is thought to be creating value if its return on invested capital exceeds its weighted average cost of capital. Return on invested capital's cousin, return on capital employed, or ROCE, is a financial ratio that measures a company's profitability in terms of all of its capital. Ultimately, the calculation of ROCE tells you the amount of profit a company is generating per $1 of capital employed. The more profit per $1 a company can generate, the better. And then there's return on capital, ROC for all my Jay-Z fans out there. Return on capital, in addition to using the value of ownership interest in a company, also includes the total value of debts owed by the company in the form of loans and bonds. It's a measurement of a company's net income relative to the sum of its debt and equity value. Think of it as the amount of money a company makes that is above the average cost it pays for its debt and equity capital. Great suggestions, Andre. Perfectly timed for our conversation with Rob Arnott. These are great fundamentals to look for when valuing a company and its stock. Thanks for riding with us this week, and special thanks to Rob Arnott for climbing aboard the Express. He's a legend, and we're going to link to all the great papers and work he and his team at Research Affiliates have put out over the years. We'll also link to all the reports we cited on this week's show, and you're going to find those wherever you ride the Express and on Investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.